אוניברסיטי וטקסי. אוניברסיטי וטקסי. קצפ ומיונז. קצפ ומיונז. אתם רואים עכשיו, אתם יכולים לחזור הביתה ולהגיד, אני יכול לדבר בעברית. Oh, it was six years ago, so that's 2004, right, that we were here. So it's great to be back, and it's great to uh, have the opportunity to do the Seder with you last night. Now, we weren't here five weeks ago. What I want to know is, when David announced he was going on sabbatical, was there a round of applause then? <laughs> it was great to see you welcoming him back, and uh, to see God evidently at work here is wonderfully encouraging to us. So... I know a guy who knows a guy who knows Haggai. The guy that I know is Tim Sigler. Dr. Tim Sigler is a professor at Moody Bible Institute. The guy that he knows is a guy named Noam Levy. Noam is an Israeli, a Jewish believer in Messiah Jesus, a Messianic Jew, we say, who was a student of Dr. Sigler's, is also a Jewish believer, at Moody Bible Institute. And uh, Tim has just returned from a 15... month sabbatical in the land of Israel. And so it was uh, about a little over a year and a half, two years ago, that he said to me, Wes, um, Noam has a neighbor named Haggai who is an insurance agent over in northern Israel. And he, uh, he figured out that when people have accidents, people who are his clients have accidents, they need to rent a car. So being an enterprising entrepreneur, he has also begun to develop a little fleet of rental cars so that he can save money for his insurance company and also make a little money by, uh, by renting out the vehicles. And he has a van to rent that my family is thinking about renting when we're on sabbatical. You should check this out. Maybe you could use it for the God's work and God's land trip. Well, the two kinds of teams that we take over to Israel, the The Yes Israel team has been a, a week of training in Chicago, and this last year, for the first time, it was in our new ministry center in Brooklyn, a week of training in Jewish evangelism, actually getting out into the streets and talking to Jewish people after some classroom instruction, uh, how to share your faith and what to share, and then going to visit the congregations throughout the land and places where our missionaries are, and to be of encouragement and help. Uh, in reaching the Jewish people there in the land of Israel. 
Uh, that has been a four-week program. I think this next year we're going to cut that back to three weeks because there are uh, fewer and fewer people who seem to be able to give a month for the short-term trips. But there are some folks who can't even take three weeks off, and so we have the God's Work and God's Land trip, which is basically going to the same places where the Yes Israel teams go and talking to the believers who are over there, our missionaries and pastors and other believers, to experience what it is that God is doing in the land. Um, and we do do evangelism on the way. We've had some wonderful opportunities as God gives us divine appointments with the people in the restaurants that we meet or just in the course of, of the, the trip, which is about a 13-day trip. So I called Haggai on the phone and said, would you be willing to rent us your van for this 13-day trip? This was about a, a year ago, March. And he said, yeah, we could, we could work that out. So he told me how much it was going to be, and it was a significant discount from what renting from Avis would have been. And so when we arrived at Ben-Gurion Airport, well, there were, I think, eight of us on the team, and we had our eight suitcases plus eight suitcases that we had brought over for our staff filled with things that they had wanted us to bring, plus, you know, computer bags and purses and carry-ons and all that kind of stuff. So we crammed all this stuff into whatever model of Hyundai van this was. It was about a 12-year-old Hyundai. And uh, we were able to cram everything in and drive down to Beersheba where we unloaded most of the eight suitcases that we had brought for others and then went down to Alat. Alat is this beautiful port city. Uh, it's the Red Sea extension that goes up between Jordan and the Sinai. And uh, there's this wonderful resort town there that has a Christian youth hostel called The Shelter. It's one of our favorite places to do ministry. I can tell you stories of wonderful conversations that we've had with unsaved Israelis there at The Shelter. Uh, it's at the end of the Israel Trail, so people who are hiking from the north to the south end up in Elat. Um, people from all over the world come to this world-class tourist destination. But this is a youth hostel, and it's not you know, a five-star hotel, so it's mostly filled with, with younger people who are, who are coming through. Well, we there for the Friday night Bible study and uh, get to interact with people after the meal, and it's just a wonderful time. Then we're with the congregation on Saturday morning, and we drive up the Rift Valley up to the Dead Sea, the lowest point on the face of the earth. And that night we drive up to Arad, climb up the mountains, to the, uh, the development town of Arad, where a lot of the Russian Jewish people have come to live, and where there's been a, a congregation established, not only among the Hebrew speakers, but also among the Russian Jewish believers. And some of the greatest concentration of opposition to the gospel comes from one of the ultra-Orthodox Hasidic sects there in town. And so we were there to encourage the believers to hear their stories of the kinds of things that they're having to endure. I mean, even out in the streets being cursed at. If you can imagine your pastor getting up in the morning and uh, his wife going out to, to the market and having people outside your door every day yelling at you, cursing at you, spitting at you. Um, that's the kind of thing that the believers in Arad have had to endure. So we were there with them uh, in, a, in a home for a meal and then drove back down. And the next morning, uh, the team went into the Red Sea while I tried to catch up on some sleep. Not the Red Sea, the Dead Sea. You don't swim in the Dead Sea, you know that, right? You don't want any of that stuff in your eyes or even in your mouth. It tastes awful, but it really burns your eyes. So you don't splash in the, the Dead Sea. Back in the van and up we go to Masada, this, this uh, 
fortress, this wonderful place where historically so much has taken place. When you read in the scripture about David hiding out in the rocks, uh, you can just picture him at a place like Masada. And then up from there is En Gedi, where we get out of the van and climb up to the waterfalls. And this is the place where David cut off Saul's robe. You remember when Saul went into the cave and David cut off a corner of his robe? So we're getting to see some wonderful sights. And up past Qumran and to Jericho, we hang a left. And from the lowest point on the face of the earth, we are going to go up to the Judean mountains where Jerusalem is, where Lori and I were privileged to live from 1980 to 82. So going to Jerusalem is a little bit like going home for us. Well, we're in this Hyundai van, right? And I'm in fifth gear, going up this wonderful four-lane highway. And then we're in fourth gear as we start to climb. And then I'm in third gear, and we haven't even got to sea level yet. And I'm in second gear, and I'm realizing... We could be in trouble here. And I glance down and I look at the temperature gauge. Now, I am not a mechanic. Uh, I was in the basement of a guy who knows a lot about cars this morning, seeing some wonderfully restored classic cars. Um, And Roy could tell you all about what to do when an engine begins to overheat. And I've been trained, but honestly, it's been a long time since I was in a vehicle that overheated. So, you know, the temperature is starting to spike and I pull over to the side, and I totally lost my mind because I turned off the engine. And you know you're supposed to turn the fan on, turn the heat on. Young people, if you haven't been in a vehicle that's overheated, this is what you're supposed to do, okay? You turn the heat all the way on full. It's counterintuitive, but this is a way to get the heat going through the system and dissipating from not just from the radiator. Well, it turns out that the motor is actually underneath my seat. And as soon as I turn off the engine, the temperature gauge really spikes and the radiator hose blows. And all this vapor is coming up, not just from out in the front of the van, but also underneath my seat, right? So we hop out and look underneath. And one of the guys says, uh, Wes, there's actually fire that's dripping onto the road. So, you know, having lost my mind already, I climb back in the van and I push the clutch and we start to roll down the hill a little bit to get away from the fire. Well, of course, the fire wasn't on the road. The fire was in the engine under my seat, right? Right. Well, Haggai had thoughtfully included a fire extinguisher, and so the guys are trying to spray underneath the wheels and stuff, but nobody wants to try to take the metal cover off of the engine where the fire actually is. Thankfully, Lori didn't lose her mind. Because she realizes as the smoke becomes darker and more intense and more acrid that we could be in trouble here. And so she instructs everybody to start unloading the eight suitcases from the back of the van. So people are doing that while the guys are trying to put out the fire. And an Arab fellow stops by and he's got a fire extinguisher. And so he's squirting this and he sees some of our water bottles. So he's uncapping those. And everything that we know to do is being done. And uh, Joel will show you what the result of our firefighting efforts were. And I think we figured out from the videotape that from the time we pulled over until the van is fully engulfed in flames was maybe six minutes. Now you talk about a helpless feeling. Here's the guy who's in charge of this We're going up to Jerusalem, and time is precious. Jerusalem is one of the places that people most want to 
be because there's so much to see, right? The Temple Mount is there, the Garden of Gethsemane and the Garden Tomb. There's lots of stuff to see and do in Jerusalem. And we're going to be losing basically a day because of what is transpiring behind me. I get on the phone and I call Haggai. I said, Haggai, I think we have a problem. And Haggai says, well, you know, have you called the fire department? And yeah, they're, they're, they're coming. Um, he said, well, I'll get to work on getting somebody to come pick you up and um, so forth. So I called him back after the fire has been put out and the police report is done. It's kind of fun when they ask to see the papers. <laughs> yeah, they're in the van. <laughs> right, he said. Um, so I called a guy back. He said, oh, don't worry, Wes. He said, I've got a tow truck coming. You know, they'll, pick, they'll take it up. They'll fix it. It'll be ready for you soon. I said, no, you don't understand. There is no van left. All we have is a charred hulk of a chassis, which was pretty much true. Have you ever been in a situation where you just can't figure out what God is doing? I mean, we got a nice deal on the van that was quite adequate for our purposes, but nobody had intended for this consequence as a result of saving a few shekels on a rental van. So I'm standing by the side of the road thinking, okay, God, what is it that you have for us? And they did send a a van that picked us up, and we did go to Avis the next day and rented a real van and finished up the trip. Um, But there are lots of times in life when circumstances happen, things more significant than this, where we wonder, God, what are you doing? This is not what I signed up for. This is not what I expected. And that's why I want to look at Matthew chapter 11 and be reminded of an episode in the life of John the Baptist. Now let's remember the setting here. It said when came about when Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples. Jesus is already well engaged in his public ministry. We know about the birth of Yeshua We know that when he was 12 years old, he was up in Jerusalem for the feast and was separated from his parents. And then we hear about the beginning of his public ministry, which sounds something like this. Behold, John the Baptist was down at the Jordan River baptizing, and he sees Yeshua, Jesus, coming, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist is the one who gets to point to the long-awaited Messiah, the one who was foretold from Genesis 3.15, where God said to the serpent that there was going to come someone that Satan would bruise his heel and this coming one would crush his head. From the very first book of the Bible, through the pathway of the prophets, we read about this expected one. And there was much messianic fervor when John the Baptist appears in his public ministry. People come to him out at the Jordan River. And by the way, the fact that John was having such a, an effective ministry was part of his birth narrative. In fact, let's go to uh, Luke. I just had to turn to Matthew, but let's go to, to Luke chapter 1. Uh, in the days of Herod, the king of Judea. So we know historically where we are. Herod dies in... Uh, 
4 BC, so this is uh, before the death of Herod. There was a certain priest named Zacharias, so we know we're talking about a Jewish family, in fact, a priestly family. This was not just someone from the tribe of Levi, but a descendant of Aaron, of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Now, we don't get to choose our parents, but if you had a choice of the kind of parents that you could have, these would be a great pair to have because they were righteous. When God says somebody is righteous and blameless, then you know they're righteous and blameless. They didn't just have a good reputation among men. They had a great reputation with God. They did have a challenge, though. They were older and had no children. Verse 7 says they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now it came about while he, Zacharias, was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office. So he's in the temple, burning the incense. The whole multitude of the people are outside in prayer. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Can you imagine this? Here you are as an old man, and it's your turn, chosen by lot, to go in and be in the holy place and to light the incense before the Lord. And all of a sudden, an angel appears, and Zacharias was troubled. It's interesting to see the responses of people when they're met with an angelic visitation, right? Usually the first thing an angel says is, don't be afraid. Why? Because we are afraid in such a case. And the same thing happens here. Verse 13, the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. Well, here's Zacharias having to deal with the fact that Gabriel is standing before him, and he's terrified, and he's told not only not to be afraid, but that the desire of his heart, the thing that he had perhaps even given up praying for, was now going to be Fulfilled. It was going to be a realized hope that his wife, an old barren woman, was going to bear a child and his name would be John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. Well, no kidding. You talk about a birthday party. For he will be great. And listen to this description. Now, this is before John ever draws a breath. He will be great in the sight of the Lord and he will drink no wine or liquor. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. Now, if you read through the scriptures and you find the description of anyone else in the Bible of whom it is said that they were filled with the Spirit from their, mo their mother's womb, I would like you to let me know because I haven't found that yet. As far as I can see, this is the only person in human history of whom it is said that while they're in their mother's womb, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And he will turn back Look, many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. This guy is going to have a public ministry and he's going to have an effective, successful ministry. There's going to be a revival in Israel that this child not yet born is going to lead. Can you imagine if you were Zechariah and feeling this or hearing these words? What an encouragement it would be to you. And not only that, verse 17 says, It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. In other words, as the prophet Malachi had foretold, and as we were reminded in the Passover Seder last night, as every year in every Jewish home where the Seder is conducted, 
a child is sent to the door to go and look for Elijah because he is the prophet that God said would be sent to prepare the way for the Messiah. John is going to be a child who is born in a miraculous way to a barren mother, not the only time in Scripture, but another clear example of God's miracle-working power. He is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. He is going to have an effective public ministry in turning the hearts of many in Israel back to the God of their fathers. And he is going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. This is the guy who, while standing by the Jordan River, seeing multitudes come down, and he preaches a baptism of repentance because the kingdom of God is at hand, and oh, look, here comes the king. John is the one the cousin of Jesus, physically by blood, family related, who gets to say of his cousin, this is the Messiah. When John begins his ministry and people are pouring down, and he's down at the Jordan River, right? This is in the Judean wilderness. And the picture of the van by the side of the road is in the Judean wilderness, right? There aren't oases all around there. I mean, Jordan, uh, Jericho is a great city of Uh, of greenery because of the oasis that it is. But it is desert country. And it is a good hike, 17 miles if I remember, from Jerusalem down that steep decline down to the Jordan River. And there are thousands of people who are pouring out of the cities and towns and from Jerusalem itself to come to listen to the message of this prophet. Are you Elijah, they say? Are you the prophet? In other words, the one that Moses speaks of in Genesis, uh, in Deuteronomy, excuse me, 13, that there's going to arise someone who is greater than Moses. Are you that one? Are you the Messiah, they ask John. And John says, no, I'm not even worthy to unloose his sandals, to go down and untie his sandals. I'm not worthy to do. And yet John gets to baptize the Messiah and to announce him to the world. This is the John the Baptist that we're reading about when we're back here in chapter 11 of Matthew in verse 2. Now when John, that's this John, John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb, effective preacher of repentance, baptizer of many, forerunner of the Messiah and the announcer that he is here, this John is in prison. Hearing of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or should we look for someone else? Now, Life in Messiah, we talk a lot about assumptions, desires, and expectations. Anytime you find yourself hurt, disappointed, discouraged, you can almost always tie that back into an unmet assumption, desire, or expectation. I don't know if there's any way that we can avoid having assumptions, desires, and expectations. We're human beings. We process life. We have joys that we set our hearts upon. Some of you are anticipating something joyful in the coming weeks, I'm sure. Closer we get to Christmas, you can just watch how kids start focusing on you know, the holidays and the Christmas catalogs and setting their assumptions and desires and expectations on a certain something or other under a Christmas tree. Three weeks from yesterday, God enabling, Lori and I are going to be out in California. And this will be the third of our three daughters um, that I will have the privilege to 
walk down the aisle and then climb up into the on the platform and perform the wedding ceremony. Jennifer is the oldest of our three girls. It's interesting that our girls got married in reverse order. Our firstborn son was the first to be married, and then Christine, our youngest, got married four years ago, and Catherine, our Israeli souvenir, the one who was born in Jerusalem, got married two years ago, and, uh, and now it's Jennifer's turn. Right? Can you imagine that there are a few desires and expectations going on out in California as they make plans for their wedding? We talked to them in the car coming down on Saturday, yesterday, and, uh, you know, they've already purchased a home and they're filling it with furniture and what expectations there are for November 6th. That day will never be the same in Jennifer's life because it is her wedding day. There are lots of things that we have desires and expectations for. But can you imagine, can you just imagine what it would have been to have been John the Baptist and to say, the desire of our nation, the hope that we have set for all of these years, this great anticipation, and there were false messiahs who appeared regularly on the horizon in Israel's history. And to be the one who gets to say, he's here, and to have the privilege of baptizing the Messiah of Israel to fulfill all righteousness. What assumptions and desires and expectations must have been wrapped up in John the Baptist's thinking. Can you imagine what that must have been like for him? The Messiah, the son of David, David, the great king of Israel, and there's one greater than David, the Messiah himself, in the lineal royal line, has now appeared. And the, uh, the oppression of the Romans and this nasty uh, ruler that we've got in Jerusalem, all of that is going to be overthrown because the Messiah is here. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, was John's message. And now the king is here. And he's my cousin, by the way. And don't you imagine that when he sets up his throne in Jerusalem, that I'm going to be at least a part of the inner circle, one of his close confidants and counselors, sit on the cabinet of the king of Israel? I mean, how could you not... How could you avoid having that kind of an expectation? Were you John the Baptist? And where does John send his emissaries from with this note for Yeshua? He is in prison. Now what happened to this fellow who was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb that he should be in prison? What kind of a left turn did he take that he fell into such a difficulty that he was thrown in prison? What crime did he commit? How could someone filled with the spirit from the mother's womb be such a criminal? The answer, of course, is that he didn't commit a crime. What he did was he stuck his finger in the face of a human king, Herod, and said, you have messed up big time. You've taken the wife of your brother to your own bedroom. And as human kings tend to do, when confronted, people in power get angry. And people in power have the ability to say off with their head. He didn't say off with their head because off with his head because John was popular in Israel. And he didn't dare to have the sentence of capital punishment for John. So what he did was he put him in Machaerus, which is this 
It's actually a fortress prison. It's one of the places that Herod, Herod the Great was called Herod the Great, not because he was such a great guy, but because he had a wonderful building program. Herod restored the, the temple in a beautiful way, well, at least began that process. He fortified Masada, built a three-tiered palace at, at Masada. The Herodian is just outside of Bethlehem. It's kind of ironic, isn't it, that in the shadow of the Herodian, this this uh, fortress that uh, Herod had built as an escape hatch because he was always concerned for, he was paranoid. Herod was really a madman. Herod the Mad is what the Jewish people called him. So he had this place built as an escape route so he could get back to Idumea. This was one of the three stopping points along the way. But in the shadow of the Herodian is a little town called Bethlehem. And the irony that Yeshua was born in the shadow of this symbol of Herod's power, the pomp and circumstance of Herod and all of his grandiose building. And here is the Lord of glory born as the King of Kings in a humble stable. The irony of that is is so rich. But he also built Machaerus as this other stopping point on his escape route. And this is down on the other side of the Jordan River. And it's um, Herod's palace with a prison underneath. And this is where John the Baptist was, history tells us. So John is there because not of an unrighteous deed, but because of calling a king out for his unrighteous, immoral activity. And John is in prison out in the desert. And Jesus doesn't come to rescue him. The son of David has not set up his kingdom. As far as we know, Jesus didn't even send a message of encouragement to John the Baptist. Jesus is with his disciples on the Israeli side of the Jordan River. And he's finished giving his instructions to his 12 disciples. His public ministry is going on full force. But there's no, no mention of John. How would you feel if you were the cousin of the Messiah and in prison for not an unrighteous act, but a righteous one? And there's no evidence that a messianic kingdom is being set up or that the messianic king has any concern for you. And in that context, this is actually a kind of a nicely worded note. I'm trying to think if I were there, the kind of language I would use if I were writing to the Messiah. Very simple, very brief. Are you the expected one? Are you really the Messiah? I mean, honestly, I thought you were. I pointed to you and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But I understood that you were the Davidic king. Really? Or should we look for someone else? The emotion that's wrapped up in that little phrase reflects the level of disappointment that John had. Have you ever been disappointed with God? Have the circumstances of your life ever been such that you said, this isn't what I signed up for, or I don't get it? 
There's a gospel out there that says, believe in Jesus and all your troubles are over. That's a gospel that is not the gospel. That's a false gospel. Believe in Jesus and your sins are forgiven and you have an eternity that is really out of this world. That eye has not seen or ear heard nor has it entered into the heart of man. The things that God is preparing for those who love him. Believe in Jesus and your sins are washed away. The wonderful words that we sang this morning about the power of being washed in the blood of the Lamb. To be able to stand with the righteousness of Jesus replacing the awfulness of our sin and the rightfulness of the eternity of torment that we deserve. Yes, believe in Jesus and all those are your present reality. But believe in Jesus and all your trials are over absolutely is not the case. And in fact, we could say that John did not get the memo and be accurate because verse 1 of chapter 11 says it came about when Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples. Well, guess who wasn't in on that Bible lesson from the Savior. John was in prison. He wasn't at the feet of Jesus hearing what Jesus had told his disciples in Matthew chapter 10. Let's just look at some of the memo that John did not get. He says, I am sending you out as sheep among wolves. This is verse 16 of chapter 10. Be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves, but... Beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. And you shall even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. It's interesting to me that the gospel going to the Gentiles was not plan B for the Savior. Many times people seem to think that that's the case. But it is always the, the fact that Jesus came first as the Messiah to Israel, absolutely. But there was always a place for the Gentiles, even in the Old Covenant when you see the court of the Gentiles at the temple. But when they deliver you up, do not be anxious about how or what you will speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you are to speak. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. And listen to these words. And brother will deliver up brother to death, and a father his child, And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all on account of me. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. And he says, when you are persecuted, then flee. And a disciple is not above his teacher or a slave above his master in verse 24. And then he says, in verse 34, one of the names of Jesus in um, Isaiah 9-6, wonderful counselor, right? The Prince of Peace. Look what the Prince of Peace instructs his disciples in verse 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Setting a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother More than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. John did not get this memo. John is still operating under the assumption that the king is here, the kingdom is at hand, and all is going to be well. 
We're going to kick out the sorry rascals, not just the Romans, not just the Herodian dynasty, not only them, but also the false teachers, the religious leaders of Israel who, whose hearts were far from God, and the kingdom of righteousness and peace is about to be established. John did not understand the postponement of the kingdom. And so he says to Jesus, should we look for someone else? Jesus at one point says to his disciples, when many were abandoning him, Jesus looks at his disciples and said, will you also go away? And Peter says, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. Listen to the words of life that Jesus sends back through John's disciples to his imprisoned cousin. And Jesus answered and said to them, verse 4 of chapter 11 of Matthew, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. Well, what Jesus doesn't say is, oh, John, I'm so sorry. I've been so busy. I forgot about you. You know, don't worry. I'm on my way over to release you from prison. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, John, you don't have to be upset. The kingdom is right at hand. Next week, I'll be establishing my throne in Jerusalem. What does Jesus say? He simply opens up the scriptures, quotes Passages from Isaiah regarding the description of the messianic ministry and says, this is what I'm doing. I am doing exactly what the Father has me doing. Elsewhere, Jesus says, no one knows the day or the hour. But my Father only. There is a plan. And the reason that so many Jewish people have not believed in Jesus is because the kingdom of righteousness and peace has not come. We talk to many Jewish people about Messiah, and honestly, there are lots of Jewish people who have given up looking for a Messiah altogether. If you're talking to a Reformed Jew, they talk about a Messianic age. It's kind of like uh, our non-premillennial mission song, the darkness will turn to the dawning and the dawning to noonday bright, and Christ's great kingdom will come to earth, the kingdom of love and light. That's the kind of uh, expectation that Reformed Jews have is that there's going to be a, a messianic age, a kingdom of righteousness and peace, uh, and it's going to be brought in essentially through education and social reform. You'll find a lot of Jewish people giving a lot of dollars to social causes because they really want to see society reform. They really want to see uh, people benefiting and living at peace and and an economic strength. We found a lot of Jewish people back in the 60s who were leading in the marches uh, in the civil rights movement. They had a lot of compassion for the downtrodden. And that's still true today. There are lots of buildings that are being named after Jewish people on college campuses. There's the Reagenstein Library at the University of Chicago, a huge library that's funded by the Reagenstein family. Because education is one of the, one of the ways for society to be reformed. Everybody desires to live in a society of, of goodness and we can all get along. But that is not what is happening in our world, is it? 
our world is not reforming. And uh, there are a lot of educated people who are criminals. Some of them are staying outside of the criminal justice system because they've been smart enough to avoid it. But there's some pretty crooked people who are highly educated people, are there not? Education is not the answer. Social reform is not the answer. It's the heart of man that has to be changed. The heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, Jeremiah 17.9 tells us. And who can know it? Well, God knows it. And God knows what needs to happen is regeneration. You must be born again. It's not a matter of washing up and dressing up and smartening up humanity so that we can become God-like. It's a matter of recognizing that our sins have separated us from a holy God. And there is no help for us through self-improvement. It has to be through the work of the Holy Spirit in regenerating us, drawing us to the Lord, opening our eyes of understanding so that we understand that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And it's of the Lord's mercy that we are not consumed. And it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy that he has saved us. And so Jesus says to John, I'm on track, I'm on schedule, I am the Messiah, I am working the works of the Father who sent me. And this is my job description in my first coming. I am doing the works, the miraculous works that were prophesied of the Messiah. I am presenting myself to the nation of Israel. Your king is coming. Humble. Riding on the foal of a donkey. It's interesting as we talk to Israelis particularly about messianic signs. How will you recognize Messiah when he comes? That's a good question to have in your toolkit when you're talking to a Jewish person. How will you recognize the Messiah? The number one answer was really surprising to me. And this is an informal survey, and there are not thousands of people who have taken it, so it's not a scientific survey. But just from personal experience, the number one answer to how will you recognize Messiah is he's going to ride into Jerusalem on a white donkey. And most of them don't even know Zechariah 9.9 is the place where the prophecy of the Messiah riding humbly into Jerusalem is from. But Jesus fulfilled all of those things and came the first time to fulfill the suffering servant passages to provide the salvation that mankind so desperately needs. Is Jesus the son of David? Is there a kingly throne for him to sit on? Yes, and it's not just the one in heaven where he is presently seated at the right hand of the Father on high. There is a throne yet to be established in the land of Israel, I believe, because I believe that God is a God who keeps his promises. Here's John the Baptist not getting what he expected. Where are you in your faith walk this morning, this pilgrim pathway that God has you on? Have you come to faith in the Messiah? Is your sin washed away because you have put your faith and trust in what Jesus did for you on Calvary? Are you a baby believer who's kind of getting their eyes open to the milk of the word and are growing but still have questions? Understand that John the Baptist, filled with the Spirit, had questions. 
I love the fact, as we mentioned last night from Genesis 15, that Abraham, counted and treated as righteous in Genesis 15:6, has questions for God in the immediate verses following. It's okay for people of faith to have questions. It's particularly okay for us to take those questions to the Lord. John didn't just sit in a cell and say, oh, forget this stuff. He sent to the Lord. I think God knows that we have weak faith. One of Jesus' favorite phrases for his disciples was, hoi pistoi allegoi. You don't even have to know Greek to love that phrase. Hoi pistoi allegoi, little faith ones. How often do I feel like a little faith one? Standing by the side of the road with a burning van saying, God, what are you doing? This is not what I expected. But you know what God did as a result of that van on fire? Haggai, you remember, had sent Noam to meet us at Ben-Gurion Airport to transfer the van to us. And then, I don't know, he took a bus or a taxi or however he got back up to his home. And Haggai had already arranged for Noam to come and meet us in Tel Aviv at the end of the God's Work in God's Land trip so that he could take us to the airport and then drop us off and take the van back up north to Haggai. But because the van was consumed with fire, there was a little matter of a deductible. That was part of the contract that we had signed with Haggai. If anything had happened to the van, then we were responsible for a deductible. Now, I could have made the case that we were not the proximate cause of the van being consumed. I mean, I was driving the van, but I hadn't done anything, as far as I know, to cause the thing to catch on fire. So I could have argued that we weren't responsible for the deductible, but I had signed the contract, and I felt that as a testimony to him that we were people of integrity, that we would make good on that. So, toward the end of our trip, where we were up in the galley anyway, instead of scooting on down to Tel Aviv, we took a little detour, not far out of our way, and we were in a moshav, not a kibbutz, which is a total shared collective, but another kind of collective village that Israelis may choose to live in. It's a wonderful, beautiful little spot. Uh, They have a lovely home, nice garden, a little patio out back, and we're sitting by... All the team, all of us, are sitting uh, around a picnic table with Haggai and his wife, Sima. You would love to have these folks for neighbors. Haggai has a great sense of humor. We showed him the video, right? And actually, we brought him a souvenir. There were two license plates on the van. The one from the back is in our office in the Chicago area, and the one in the front we presented to Haggai, this burned remnant of a license plate. And Haggai says, you want to hear something funny? And I'm thinking, well, yeah, this would be a good time to hear something funny. He says, oh, this is really funny. He said, my wife Seema is kind of our business manager. He said, a lot of wives don't like to get involved in their husband's business. He said, but I've seen a lot of instances where the husband dies and the wife doesn't have any clue what's going on. So I told Seema she's got to have a hand in the business. So she keeps the books. So just last week, she was reviewing some of our bills, and she said, you know, this is an older van. You know, we really don't need to keep insurance on this. So last week, we canceled the insurance! And he's laughing. He said, isn't that funny? And we're all looking at him like, no, it's not really funny. He said, no, it's really funny. And as a result of our being at his table, 
for about two and a half hours, we had the privilege of sharing our faith with him. This is a fellow who was born of Holocaust survivors. Both of his parents lived through the Holocaust, moved to what was then Palestine, married, had a son named Haggai, and died, both of them, when he was three years old. He was basically raised in a kibbutz as an orphan. This is a fellow who has no idea who the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is. And for over two hours, we had the privilege of opening his Bible and sharing from him the scriptures of why we believe that Yeshua is the Messiah and gave testimony of the fact that our sins are forgiven because of his cross work on our behalf. Well, I had no way of knowing that when we were standing by the side of the road that the outcome would be a wonderful divine appointment with a precious Israeli couple. Sometimes God gives us the ability to see in hindsight what he's doing when we don't understand at the moment what he's doing. But honestly, there are things in my life that even after many years and decades have passed that I still can't figure out why those things happened. But I have confidence that the God who is weaving together the tapestry of our lives in such a marvelous way. And David alluded to it just a little bit in his introduction of how Brother Ed Harrell became a member of the Board of American Messianic Fellowship because he was a member of a church in the Quad Cities that had supported our ministry. And I can't tell you the numbers of ways in which Mr. Ed and Miss Ola have been an encouragement to us. And the connection that we now have with this church is not a coincidence. It's not just a a nice little historical fact. It's another demonstration of the fact that God has his fingerprints all over our lives in ministry. And I will tell you that that is what gives us courage when we face some of the greatest opportunities and challenges. One of the things we're saying at Life and Messiah is it's going to get harder, but it's going to get better. I believe that we are entering a time of deepening darkness in our country and around the world. I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet. I do know we're closer to the Lord's return today than we were yesterday. If this is the generation to which Jesus will return or not, I cannot say with definitude. But I do know this. This is the only generation that we have an opportunity to impact. If Jesus comes tonight, if he comes before this message is over, are you in a place where you would be joyfully expecting him? We chastise the Jewish people for missing the fact that Messiah showed up. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But how many people, how many of us are actively anticipating the return of the Lord Jesus? Has he promised to return? Does he say he's coming quickly? Is that informing the way that we think and act? Is the fact that Jesus could come today making a difference in the way we choose to live our lives? There are lots of practical applications that can come out of this message. I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will speak to your heart where you sit today. Wherever you are listening to this message, wherever you are on your spiritual journey, it's my prayer this morning that for you, the priority would be to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. There is no substitute for being filled with the Holy Spirit.
to listening to his voice. So that when those tests come, when the doubts come, I have found no way to stop the fiery darts of the enemy. You can only imagine the assault that John the Baptist was under spiritually while he was in prison. His world was changed. His expectations were being shattered. And Satan had to be right there filling his mind with the lies that Jesus couldn't possibly be who he said he was or life wouldn't be this way. Whatever your circumstances are, your assumptions, your desires, your expectations, today, are you willing to surrender those? And like John, go to Jesus and say, what is it that you're doing? Let's pray. Father, I think of the Jewish people around the world in so many ways in which their assumptions and desires and expectations have been reshaped, reformed because of those fiery darts of the enemy. There are Jewish people who have no use for the God of their fathers. They woke up today and they will pillow their heads tonight with no thought of who you are. There are others who are very devoted and in their zeal to try to serve you are wrapped up in religious tradition and observance. Father, whatever the case of the Jewish people out there or the folks that are here in this room today, we ask that you would penetrate our hearts by the power of your Spirit. Draw us to the Savior. Help us to humble ourselves under your mighty hand that you might lift us up. Do your work in the hearts of each of us, individually and corporately as the church here in Joelton, Tennessee. Calvary Bible might shine as a light in this community and by extension around the world to touch the lives of many. Prepare us for the soon arrival of our triumphant Savior who will come with power and great glory from heaven on high, his saints with him one of these days. May we not be ashamed in that day, we ask. In Yeshua's name, even Jesus our Savior, with thanksgiving. Amen.